Welcome to the Ending Hopelessness Podcast, a Treehouse production. Treehouse equips churches and nonprofits to end hopelessness among teens through support groups, mentoring, and faith programming. We are a group of diverse, seasoned Christian youth workers who care about faith and teens who are experiencing hopelessness. Join us as we have important conversations about youth ministry and teen mental health. Hey, welcome to the Ending Hopelessness podcast, where we have important conversations about teen ministry and teen mental health. As usual, I'm your host, Tim Cryer. I am rolling solo today. I don't have my co-host, Jimmy, with me. And so we're going to see if I can pull this off on my own. But, you know, we've got a great guest, uh, Dr. Rich Griffith. Uh, He is an associate professor of youth ministry at, and he just told me how to say this and now I'm blanking <laughs> Tacoa, Tacoa Falls in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, he has an undergraduate in special education, which just warms my heart. I have a deep uh, affinity for anyone in special ed. Uh, and he has two masters, one in theology and one in organizational leadership and then a doctorate, which means uh, he's been in college a lot. Uh, <laughs> and very broke for it, <laughs> but he's, he's got a lot of experience, I think for this. So his doctorate in youth family and culture, which is uh spot on for, uh, the work that we do. I'm reading from his book here. So I'm going to read this in the past several years. It has been my desire to find ways to bridge the lofty theories and research of youth and family ministry with authentic practicing, uh, practical ways of discipling our young generation. Yeah. That's a pretty thorough introduction. What what else would you say about yourself that we need to know? Well, I guess, Tim, the reason that came about is I spent 30 plus years exclusively in youth ministry, work with churches, parachurch organizations like Young Life, help be a part of Pioneer Wildlife for middle school, which is appropriately named, as you know. <laughs> you know, frankly, I adopted three sons out of the system. And even mm-hmm. after all those years as a youth pastor, I had no clue how to disciple my own children. And that sounds kind of strange, but it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's easier, but it's just a different approach when you're discipling students in your youth ministry or your parachurch organization. And then it comes to your own kids and you're kind of like, I have no idea what to do. (laughs) Part of the problem is I think we've over-professionalized discipleship. We have taken it out of the hands of parents and, you know, we've done it at churches. We have curriculum that we use and maybe parents will use curriculum if we give them something, but maybe not. So it's a lot of hit or miss. So I just had to think of some practical ways to, you know, really disciple my kids in meaningful ways that came out of Deuteronomy 6. So, you know, as you go kind of approach. That's a book, right, that you wrote called Helping Our Children and Youth Listen to Wise Counsel. That's something that people can grab on Amazon or is it? Uh, it will come out. It's oh, being, okay. So this is not one of the, it's not one of those self-published deals. So it takes a little bit longer. Um, sure, sure. Random House Publishing will be completing it in December uh, and it'll be out in market in December this year. Uh, and it's it's called Voices helping our children and youth discern uh, or listen to wise voices. You think I know my own title. (laughs) That's all right. You know, and then there's another one to follow that it's in the uh, acquisition stage right now. And it's called discipleship is leadership. And that one takes Erickson's psychosocial development and pairs Mm -hmm. it with leadership models 
that are age appropriate and then gives you biblical example of it stuff. But so I got really serious about this discipling young people because it's, it's, you know, they call us evangelicals for a reason, not disciplicalicals. <laughs> yeah. Once uh, we get them into the camp, what do we do with them? Right. Like exactly. that's, that's a little harder. Well, this yeah. is near and dear to my heart. Cause I have three kids, 12, 10 wow. and four, and they're all about to turn. Uh, they all have birthdays in the next few months. So I'll soon have a 13-year-old, which makes me feel old. I don't know. How, <laughs> how old are your kids? Oh, gosh, 23, 20, and oh. uh, 14. So We, just by hearing that, know that you're really old and I'm just old. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really old, too. It, it feels that way for sure. So, so you adopted your children from the system. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like what preempted that um, and what was uh, that like? Yeah, I was overseas doing some consulting with a group called Military Community Youth Ministries, uh, MCYM, and working with uh, military dependents. Long story short, I was having my quiet time one morning and came across James 127, you know, religion that is pure and faultless in the eyes of God the Father exists to care for orphans and widows in their time of distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I say now I should have gone for the widow. It might've been easier, <laughs> but yeah, I, I felt really convicted by that. I'd, mm. I'd read it before multiple times, but uh, so just basically, again, long story short, after fighting that call for four years, uh, winding up uh, adopting my oldest son, Aaron, who is now the 23 year old. And, and Tim, it, it, it actually changed the course of the work that I was doing on my doctoral work um, because of bringing kids up out of the system and just seeing the brokenness and dysfunction and uh, gave me a new heart, too, for understanding the adoption theology where God calls us his adopted children. Because one thing I learned from my children is I could tell them, and I'm sure you get this with your kids, too, you can tell them and you can show them every single day that you love them. But if they lean into their brokenness, especially kids that come out of the system, if they lean more into that brokenness rather than the redemption, they're not going to believe it. And how many times do we feel that with God, right? Oh, I'm not good enough or whatever, right? If we're leaning into our brokenness, of course, we don't believe God loves us. But if we leave and lean into his redemption, that's where we start this process of accepting his love. Hmm. So, yeah, long story, I guess. Yeah. Um, how did that play out for now, listen, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm single too. And that's why I fought the call. I thought, no, people are going to think this is weird. I thought it was oh, weird. Okay. I love that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought it was weird. And and there's a lot I learned through that. And, um, you know, in your marriage, you put your wife first, right? Your wife should come first. And that way you model that to your children. Um, you know, I saw a lot of marriages really struggle when you bring some really hurting kids into the home. But, you know, again, that's not the purpose of, of this conversation, but it just gave me the focus that I needed for, for all three kids to just pour into them. And, uh, man, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life though, man. Mm. I, <laughs> I gotta I've, tell you, it's, it's I have hard. So many questions. So, and, <laughs> Go for and it. you know, my producer, he's like, you should keep these to 30 minutes. Why did you give me a 90 minute conversation? So <laughs> here we go. So one, I always like to dig into this because I think this is a reality that a lot of people feel within the church is they experience something that's kind of outside the norm. So it might be divorce yeah. or adopting kids as a single dad or yeah. whatever it is that kind of fits out of our cultural understanding of what it is to maybe follow God. I don't know if that's the right language, but, and then I think it can have all these effects on us. So I'm curious, did you experience any of that kind of people questioning your judgment or did you feel well, like a supporter or was it a mix 
I question my judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Reality is the church, because I I also part-time pastor a church, so they're they're very supportive. And and so every single one of my kids, this is part of the Voices uh, uh, book too, every single one of my kids, I made sure they had mentors outside Mm -hmm. the home. Uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, they need to have somebody other than dad to talk to. And every parent needs to hear that. You know, like one time, one my middle son, Dylan, told me, he says, you know, he had done something that was wrong. And he said, dad, the reason I didn't tell you is I didn't want to disappoint you. Mm. And so we have a rule in our house. You don't have to talk to me, but you have to talk to somebody. And we have to agree on who it is, someone you chose as a mentor. And, you know, it keeps me honest. There have been times I've lost my temper and I've had to go to the men in my church and say, I've lost my temper. And uh, so my my kids know they have open doors with mentoring, which is the second voice that we talk about in the book. And I told my congregation, I said, I hope you treat every kid that walks in these doors as well as you treated my kids, not just because they're the Mm. pastor's kids. So they have extended family through the church. And that's one of the things. So I had a a mom who's a grandma who's reparenting her grandchild. And we see this a lot more in our culture where grandparents are parents. And one of the things she said to me, she said, Rich, we, we have made an idol of marriage in the church in America. And it's so true. We're we're so geared towards still nuclear families, mom, dad, 2.5 kids, which is a post-World War II construct, um, that we're missing a lot of families out there through no fault of their own who don't fit that nuclear family model. And yet the church is still, you know, programming and planning for them. And we have all these other single parents, grandparents, reparenting, single grandparents who just need the support. Uh, you know, so one of the things I'm really trying to advocate for is not just church and family, but church as family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that's what Jesus advocated for. Well, I love that uh, you said that it's an extended family, because I think while there's many of us who've been hurt by the church, there's also many of us who have felt healed and accepted sure. and loved and have been an integral part of our life being part of the church. And I think sometimes even myself, I focus on that enough. So I love that. Um, I would extend out kind of the church into our broader community, our broader society. Um, So two years ago, I moved from the inner city to the Mm -hmm. suburbs and the inner city just had more families that weren't, you know, the world war two family, which you just talked about. And so from summer programming that was offered to after school to even the school structure was different. It was meant to kind of meet the needs of the majority. And now I live in a suburban community where the majority kind of more fits that World War II family. And I find that we as two working parents that, you know, kind of for them, I mean, we have three kids, pretty much the same, but we have two working parents Yes. can't participate fully and our kids miss out because we don't that's just a small change think about what you talked about a single parent which you experienced having three boys being a single dad and and all the things that i think the systems out there then our churches kind of adopt and fit into those systems within our communities and kind of repeat it um, how did you kind of fight against that as a pastor? I think, again, it's a matter of discipleship. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of wonderful things that come out of church, but we still have this drive to kind of make people assimilate rather than to be adopted mm. into the family. I, I could tell you an experience where I didn't get the support from the church. And so talking about programming, I was at a particular church where I was a pastor and they had a, and they need to have these things. They need to have, they used to call it uh, married people, big night out. 
and they'd have a speaker and they'd have dinner and they'd take care of the parents and it'd be entertaining and discipleship. And then they'd take care of the kids and they'd feed them and they'd have a program for the kids and stuff. And here I am as a single dad, just being toasted with my first son, just because it was just so exhausting. And I said, man, I, we really need to have something like this for single parents and things like that too. And, and our other pastor who ran the event, the program just said, well, we're not ready for that. Well, that was like 12, 13 years ago. To my knowledge, they still haven't done anything like that. Mm. And so I think this concept of, you know, when Jesus looks at Mary on the cross, when he's on the cross and he looks at Mary, he says, woman, behold your son. He's not saying to her to look at him because then he looks over at John and says, behold your mother, right? And the scripture says that from that day on, John took her into his home. And so Jesus even redefines family again, as the family of God, right? And so I think we need to honor as many of the family systems we can. I think there's dysfunctional, unhealthy families out there, but all the more reason why the church needs to really pour into kids who have no say in the family structure that they come from or the family system, if that makes sense. It seems like it's um, allowing our theology, because I I bet if you were to jump into the theology of that church, the least of these, you know, they would be very much saying, yeah, we are supposed to be you know, for the widow, for the right. orphan, for the least right. of these, but yet the structure that they had created didn't replicate the theology. And so, well, then what's then speaking to that structure? You know, who knows? It could be the the majority of our people who go here, who give us money, you know, maybe they're not even thinking about this, fit into this yeah. structure. And so we're going to kind of meet their needs and yeah. it's almost like they they abandoned their theology. I think it's a little ne- less nefarious than that, honestly. And I'm not saying what you're saying is nefarious. I think sure, yeah, yeah. think that way. But I think what it really boils down to is as pastors, we minister out of our empathy. We minister out of what we know, right? Mm. So for years, it's been looked down upon if you're a pastor that were divorced or you know, even as a single pastor, people are trying to constantly set me up, <laughs> which I appreciate <laughs> it, but it doesn't always work out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's this idolatry of marriage. Now, if people are married, God bless them. They want to do that. They need to do that. They need to stick with it. But I think pastors, we minister out of our empathy. So if we haven't been a single dad or we haven't been a single mom or we haven't, you know, whatever it is, we haven't adopted kids, we don't know what that's like. And so most pastors come from that nuclear family model. That's their family, right? And so what they do is they minister out of what they know. Mm. Uh, It's hard to minister out of what you don't know. So I don't think it's even... I just think there has to be a lot more intentionality when it comes to the church and how we disciple. And so hence is part of the, the, the work that I'm working on, not just how we disciple kids, but how do we disciple intergenerationally? We are going to take a little break and we'll come back. I am lovable, capable, and worthwhile. I am loved without strings and I am never alone. Treehouse is an organization that creates a safe space for teens through one-on-one mentoring, support groups, and faith programming. At Treehouse, teens are introduced to a loving God who will always be with them and accepts them exactly as they are. When teens are rooted in this living hope, transformation begins. I have a future. The Treehouse mission is to end hopelessness among teens. You can help. Visit treehousehope.org. Well, let's let's jump into a little bit of what you kind of learn what's in this book because it is something where I've spent much of my life discipling and doing ministry with teens. And I got to my own kids and I started thinking, mm. 
am I failing? How do I do this? You know, I'm like, we complained about parents who sent their kids to youth group and expected the youth group to do all the discipling. And like, now I got my kids going to youth group and I'm struggling knowing how do I kind of help them take steps towards growth and keep their identity it's just hard. So I'm I'm curious. I've heard you talk about mentoring and, and the voices. So do you want to elaborate a little bit more on like Oh sure. I, so without giving the whole book away because there's no incentive <laughs> and, and Randall House probably wouldn't be happy with me if I just spilled everything and you know, like people like, why don't I need to buy the book? Right. Then the ones taking the candle. <laughs> but I can tell you this. So I want to backtrack a little bit. I want to talk about family structures, how this happens. So back when we were more agrarian society, there was extended family. A lot of times you would have grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, at least around, right? Either in the home or in the next farm down or whatever. Uh, people didn't, it wasn't very mobile. And I want to go through the whole history of it, but basically what has happened is we moved to, we went industrial revolution happened. Small families had to get smaller because of living in the city was different, right? They didn't have a lot of space. Then post-World War II, nuclear family went to the suburbs, mom, dad, 2.5 kids. What has happened through all this though, is if you've noticed, this is a really fascinating study. Uh, Right now we're at a point where childbirth is getting to be, you know, a really subpar of the normal number, right? We're, We're having people getting married later, not having children. And what's happening is with all the divorces, single parents, grandparenting, reparents, all these different family structures, what's fascinating about this is not only is the family size shrunk, but the support systems for families have shrunk. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, at least when I was growing up, there wasn't so much the separation of church and state. And what I mean by that, and Tim, I don't know how old you are, you're probably at least 10 to 15 years younger than me. <laughs> but what happened is like, if you grew up where I, where I did, yeah. they didn't have sports on Wednesday night or Sunday because church, right? Well, and then youth pastors still were able to go in the school somewhat, very guarded. Well, things are changing, right? Because we're becoming a very post-secular culture. So what's happening. So I get this work from Chap Clark, Dr. Chap Clark. And what has happened is we've moved beyond systemic abandonment of our young people to now we're criminalizing them. Let me set this up really quick. So systemic abandonment, just a short version of it is that all the adult institutions that were supposed to be about raising healthy uh, young people have been hijacked by adult-driven agendas. Mm. So now you tag that on top of the fact that schools don't communicate with churches hardly anymore. Parents don't communicate with schools hardly anymore, right? Ask a teacher. It's hard to get parents to go into school meetings and stuff like that. Uh, parks and rec doesn't matter when they do the game. So all these institutions are now disconnected. So you have Johnny and Susie who are teenagers who pretty much parrot back what the, the influences in their life say, because they're still developing their identity formation, right? When the teacher at the school says a Johnny or Susie will repeat a back. But when the coach says B Johnny and Susie will repeat B back to the coach. When parents say C, they were, But the problem is they're not really discovering who they are because now they have too many disconnected voices in their life telling them what they should do. And so this is why adolescence is now defined as age 11, starting in puberty to about 29 now, which ends in meeting social markers, right? So think about that. Kids used to get married at age 15 in the agrarian society, right? Now they're waiting till 29 to meet social markers of adulthood. And this is because all the voices, hence the name of the book. They got too many voices vying for their attention. So the book is a way to help parents, youth workers, grandparents, whoever are caring for young people to determine uh, certain filters that they use 
in the certain voices that come into the kids' lives, right? I'll give you an example. I'll tell you the filters. <laughs> Hopefully around the house won't get, in, won't get me in trouble here. But anyway, I'm going to use a simple one, right? A simple one on the extreme of the not so, what I call the the noisy, bad voices, the loud voices, right? And I get this from a, a retiring pastor who was retiring. He said, you ever notice that the most noise comes from the shallow end of the pool? Let that sink in for a minute. You know, when it comes to our culture, the most noise comes from the shallow end of the pool. So think about digital media and social social media, right? That's a lot of voices coming in our kids' lives every single day, right? And so the three filters are time, transparency, and trust. And I know you know this is a parent, but for social media, the question is how much time not only does your kids spend on social media, but how much time is social media giving back to your children? So if you can answer that question, how much time investment does social media give back to your kids? Sound like a trick question, right? Yeah, I mean, depends how you measure that. You know, mm-hmm. I think they don't give any time back. Bingo. Um, they yeah. consume time, right? So now this is an even more obvious question. Is social media transparent? No. So just on those two filters alone, what we teach our children is, then why would you trust them? If they're not giving you time, if they're not being mm. transparent, why would you trust it? And then I go through a lot of different voices uh, that are in our young people's lives and kind of open those up to let people see what's really going on and why it's why a lack of discipleship is hindering the primary task of adolescence is identity formation. And this is why it's hindering right. identity formation, too many voices in their lives. So, so. Yeah, I mean, I think when we think about society's transformation over the last hundred years, identity was a little more laid out for you in some ways, right? Your, your parents were farmers, you were a farmer, and that's what you did from a young age until you were old. You didn't have a lot of space to say, what do I want to do? And what, what are my giftings? And, you know, and then you didn't have 10 other farmers next to you, necessarily to compare yourself to. So I think the challenge of identity has been very complicating for many generations now of young people. That's a reality where those voices, right? Yeah. Like you said, the voices have increased. It's harder to siphon that out. Parents are busier. It's a, it's a soup. We're expecting our kids to wade through it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think I read something in your book which said something like parents on average have like five minutes of meaningful conversation a day. Yeah. And I was convicted because I thought, oh, how many times do I have those kind of meaningful conversations with my kids? Yeah. Well, Tim, and, and the other good part of the book, too, is there's actually recommendations. I'm glad the book made you ask questions because that's what it's intended to do. There are questions at the end of each chapter that help walk a person through, not not to be convicted or anything, but just to ask those questions, right? And then at the very end of the book, there are uh, actually things that I published in a different article that are meaningful ways you can you can interact with your kid and discipleship intentionality. Like, for instance, again, Deuteronomy 6, you know, what's interesting about Deuteronomy 6 is it's written to the community and to the family, right? This is why I say church as family, because Deuteronomy 6, as you lie down, as you get up, right, that's the home. But then posted on your door frames and your, your gates, that's the community, right? And so it doesn't take, you don't have to buy a ton of, the Bible can be your curriculum, right? So I'll give away one little thing I do with my, and, and this will be powerful for you to understand how this has impacted my adopted kids. 
So one of the things I discovered to do is really simple is I drive my son, my youngest son to school and we'll go through either like the book of Psalms or John, or we'll mix it up, but we try and stay on some for at least a couple, three, four weeks. And so we were going through the book of Psalms. So we, what we do is he'll read it because I'm driving, right? I don't want to yeah, yeah, <laughs> distract yeah, him, right? And yeah. then, so at the end of when he's done reading the Psalm, I'll say, well, what does that mean? And we have a conversation. What does that mean to you and stuff like that? And so after about doing this for three or four weeks, typical conversation, you know, what does it mean for you and stuff like that? He goes, okay, dad, I get it. He says, all these Psalms, they kind of start out like really bad and stuff. And the Psalmist is like having a bad day and stuff like that. But God comes through and what it tells me, and I try not to get emotional saying this because you got to understand this coming from an adopted kid. What he said is, I understand from reading the Psalms that God will never leave me or forsake me. That's powerful coming from a kid who had a lifetime of adults abandoning him. Mm. So it just, you know, some simple things like that, you know, and, and allowing to hear your child more, just asking some probing questions and stuff. So there are, there are simple things we could do to not feel like we're, like you said, as a parent, I felt like I was messing up. So this is the heart behind everything I'm, I'm writing that. And then the heart of a youth pastor. For sure. I, I'm a big believer in ritual. And so, yeah. Yeah. you know, b- building that in, it creates familiarity for kids and you enter into this thing you do regularly and it kind of is immediately a safe recognizable and so you're able to enter into a deeper level more quickly because it's a repeated comfortable all the guards are down and they're ready to engage it every time you're in the car on the way to school you're providing for your kids what Every child psychologist will tell you that the kids need, which is stability, right? It's consistency and stability. And so you're doing that. I, I don't know if you know this. So the rapidity of change in culture, like, I don't know if you know this now, but the generation gap used to be like 20 years, right? But mm-hmm. now because it's driven by technology, it's five to seven years. You have older high school kids who don't know how to relate to their younger middle school siblings. There's just this complete disconnect. And it didn't used to be that way, right? So Generation gap shrinking. It's creating what's called gerontophobia. I don't know if you ever heard of that. No, I've never heard of that. Gerontophobia is a fear of older people. And then you put that on the fear of younger people with phobophobia. That's what's going on in our culture. But what I tell churches is that's because we've been such a separated, divided church. We're not mentoring. We're not discipling. We're not doing the things we we should do. Because here's the thing. The only reason you fear something is because you don't know it. So if you don't know your young people in your church, you're going to have a phobia. If they don't know the older people, you're going to have gerontophobia. That's what's going on in church. That's why older people say, oh, I can't work with teenagers anymore, right? That's just not true. They, they're they looking for those voices of wisdom. It's a lot so, to unpack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So logistically, where did you even find mentors that you felt like were a good fit for your kids? I know this is going to sound crazy, but I observed, I'm like, okay, who are my kids talking to? Who are they not afraid of approaching? You know, who takes an interest in them in a healthy way? So I'll tell you a little story. So my youngest son has a a mentor. Her name is Miss Harriet. Miss Harriet is, I probably shouldn't say her age, but she she might get mad if she ever sees this, but (laughs) let me just put it this way. She and Jamie wrote a part of the foreword in the book, which is really cool because he will go over and he'll like go and sand her deck mm. uh, stuff. They can't get him to do here. Right. But she'll go, he'll go <laughs> sand her back deck and stuff like that. She taught him how to bake brownies. So guess what he wants to do when he comes home? He wants to bake brownies, right? Here's a 14 year old who wants to bake brownies for his dad. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not much of a dancer. She'll turn music on. She gets silly with him and she's dancing with him and stuff like that. And so here's two people in our church 
that are decades apart and yet they love each other and they're being discipled with each other. It's really, it's bringing energy and experience together. It's really phenomenal. Yeah. So I just look at who the, who the kids are, you know, connecting with and, and I'm not afraid to make an ask. I'll say, look, you know, um, my son needs somebody to mentor them. And I, I give them male and female voices in their life. Yeah. So now your kids are older out of the house, 23, 20 and, uh, 14. Now, the older one, I'll be honest with you, he's dealing with still a lot of stuff, but he still calls, checks in every now and then. He's he had the worst abuse of all of them. Mm. My my middle son moved back. He's twenty. I'm not sure how to take that, but I guess it's a compliment because he he told yeah, me yeah. it's a safe place to come back to, right? And kids that come with trauma, man, they're the ones you need to love the most because I mean, think about this. Think about kids that come to your youth group that might be difficult to handle, right? Because they got trauma and like. And by the way, trauma is increasing in our young people. That's why they're getting all this anxiety and stuff. It's not just kids in the system. Yeah, yeah. But they need a safe place to come back to. They need to know that you're going to love them no matter what. Now, you're going to hold them accountable. You're not going to be codependent, but you're going to have roles for them to fill, you know, going to college, doing whatever. Yeah, I think like anything, I think we think of discipleship as a machine. We put the kid in one end, they come out the other end, and they're uh, fully wish. formed or whatever. Yeah. Um especially if they have other things going on like abuse or, you know, especially things that have happened to them as children where it's, yeah. you know, changed their physiology. It's not a machine. It, it's a day at a time and it's working, walking alongside. So I really appreciate that. Cause that's real. That's just, yeah, the, that, that's your area of expertise. Right. And so yeah. mm-hmm. we know that if the brain has suffered traumatic injury through PTSD or whatever, you know, that prefrontal cortex that is a logical part of the brain it takes a lot more for that part of the brain to overcome the amygdala because, you know, it's the fight, flight, or freeze, and they get stuck there. It takes longer for them to develop the neuropathways to overcome that. Now, interesting observation, this is why, again, adolescence is being extended. It's taking kids longer to overcome the trauma of systemic abandonment in their life. I feel like you just throw a hand grenade in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big statement, so let's say yeah. more. Again, if kids are experiencing trauma, right, the prefrontal cortex, the logical part of the brain is going to take longer to develop because they're functioning on the fight, flight, or freeze part of the brain, right? The amygdala. Now, this is your expert. You should be talking about mm-hmm. No, this. you but, go. You go. But what is happening when a culture systemically abandoned, my, my work was actually built off of Dr. Clark's. I, I think we went beyond systemic abandonment. I hate to say this. We're in a, I, I just had a conversation, a podcast with Dr. Chap Clark. And I said uh, in there, I said, actually, we've crossed the line and we're now in systematic abandonment. And he pushed back. He said, well, it's not intentional. I'm like, yeah, it is intentional. When parents are doing things like, I hate to say it, they get drug addiction and they're pushing their kids off on their grandparents. That's systematic. When our schools are criminalizing kids through zero tolerance, that's systematic. There have been school systems that have pushed traumatized kids out of the school during testing so that their grades are better. And, you know, you can read anything from the school to prison pipeline, any textbooks on that. And I'm telling you, we are in a culture now where we're systematically abandoning. And I would say even to some degree abusing our children. So this is what's going to happen when you're in this fluid post-modernity. Yeah. And I think it's been happening for a long time. If we're talking systems. You can go all the way back to Dr. David Elkine, right? The hurried child. Do you remember that one? That classic book? And Yuri Bronfenbrenner at College of Human Development. And you look at all these uh, child psychologists, development specialists, and they've been sounding the horn since like the 70s and 80s 
but it's like it's falling on deaf ears. And I, I think as a church, all we can do is because we operate in the system of our community and whether that's suburban, urban, or rural, like, I think we need to be aware of the community we live in. Yes. What do the people look like here? You know, what's the age gap? What's the, you know, salary gap? You know, how are the systems over time? How has this community been created and how is it impacting the rich and the poor in this community? And then what is our role here? Right. Right. And and specifically for youth pastors, what is our role with the young people here and how can we be countercultural? Yeah. If we look like our community or we're trying to fit some nineties version of what youth ministry looked like, you know, I think we're missing the, missing the ball. Is that, is that a missing the boat, missing the boat, missing the the ball. (laughs) Yeah. That's hard. And I think what's doubly hard about that as a youth pastor, you often has very little power, especially if you're young, you can say, Hey, the youth pastor model that you used when you were a youth pastor, pastor is no longer, you know, viable, but they've been out of it maybe for so long and it worked for them. So they don't necessarily know. So it's, it can be very challenging for youth pastors to know how to build a countercultural youth ministry. I know a number of people who went through my doctoral cohort, and I know people who I've been in this boat myself where you try and tell your hiring committees what's going on. And, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, we want to get on board. But then when they start hitting this cognitive dissonance, they just don't want to do it anymore because it's not they do programs. Programs are easy to measure. You know, they're flashy and get people in. But we're losing 75 percent, 75 percent of our young people that come in church doors and they're not walking with Christ afterwards. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, what good is that? You know, if you only have maybe 25 percent of young people staying, it's hard to break the paradigm. Um, I've had pastors say, well, our kids want more playtime, even though they're getting tons of playtime. Right. But, yeah, it's not the ministries of the 80s. Kids did have more supports they don't have now. Yep. I've started sending my son to a group that does mentoring and they're about 20, 30 kids. And then they have mentors from their church in the community and they have a teen or one to three teens that they mentor and connect with. And his mentors texting him throughout the week and they're building this relationship. And I tried like three, four different youth groups. And this is the one that really, you know, hooked him was this relationship that went beyond a program. Yeah. I'm hoping that more and more of our youth ministries are starting to see that this is, this is the need. The hard thing is, is there's not enough people, right? If you're going to do mentoring, it takes people. Well, and this is why you get the chariots, right? They're, they're in that generative stage, uh, generativity versus stagnation, right? So they want to know their, their life matters and counts. I mean, you could pray for that child. You can get together with that kid once a month. You could so it's Chap Clark and Mark DeVries says it's stacking the stands, right? Mm. It shouldn't be one youth worker to every five, 10 kids. It should be five youth workers to every one kid. Now that's yeah, the yeah. experience. It's the coaches. It's the youth pastor. It's a small group leader. When you start realizing they don't have to be on the day in and day out of youth ministry, you start to realize, oh, these kids can have five people that's mm. caring, trusting Christian adults that do speak into their life. Yeah. yeah. So if, if I'm a youth pastor out there, trying to develop a meaningful ministry. And maybe I have a heart for kids who have trauma or kids who kind of are outside of the the norm or whatever. What would be your advice to those folks? 
Well, <laughs> the cynical part of me would say good luck. Because <laughs> we've all, we've all been And there. we're done. <laughs> the hopeful part of part of me says this. So the, the ministry leadership courses I took when I got the organizational leadership would tell you this, and it's so true because I've tried this. Instead of looking at the negative, you have to do what's called a, an asset appreciation, or you do an asset inventory. Who are the people that you have that can make a difference, right? And our youth groups are not going to be 100% traumatized kids, right? No. So you're probably going to have, you know, three or four, I don't know how many, but fact of the matter is then you look at your assets and say, all right, who are people who have a heart for troubled kids too? They're here. And then you just start connecting. And honestly, you make changes slow. You won't get anything done being the bull in the china closet. You got to start with what you can, where you can. So let's say you even take one of your kids that experiences trauma, right? You stack the stands with that one kid. When God gets a hold of that kid's life and people see the change, who's going to be the people who are going to speak the loudest? Well, they're going to be the people who mentored that kid. The kid will eventually speak the loudest. And every time you have a success in that type of mentoring relationship, man, you celebrate the snot out of it. You just go full blown. You, you share testimonies. And you know what? Change will come slowly, but it will come. And now, fortunately, more people are starting to catch on to this. We just need our lead pastors and our youth pastors to be in sync on this. Sure, sure. We don't have to change every kid. Start right. small and then go from there. Who's the kid that's on your heart that you right. wakes you up at night or that you find yourself praying for? Yeah. And how do you, what did you say? Stack the stands? Stack the stands. I love yeah, that. That makes all the difference. And you, you know, you guys know the story. You've read the inspirational, all the 10,000, whatever starfish on the sea and a little girl mm, stole the starfish. Right, oh, yeah. you'll never make a difference. Right. Well, it made a difference to that one. Right. And didn't Jesus say, leave the 99 for the one? Yeah. Yeah. As I've been in this a long time, working with kids who have significant challenges, um, I often thought I did it so that they would change or have change. And I found that often, they didn't change as much as I would have hoped. It wasn't a miracle um, that there were small incremental changes, but I had to do it because I was called. And so whether or not a kid said yes to Jesus or changed their life or became a doctor or whatever my bar of achievement was in my own head of success, even if they didn't meet that, like I'm still called to keep showing up. Um, and you see this in scripture, you see prophets, doing difficult things and not seeing necessarily what we would consider success, quote unquote. And so like this mentoring model changes lives. It's huge. I'm a huge proponent, but also it doesn't always. And I think we have to do it not for the rewards like that. If that's our reason, you may last a few years, but if you're doing it because you feel called and you're just going to keep showing up because that's who you are and that's what God's calling. And then for me, that's kind of what I tell youth pastors. You do it because you're called, not because you want the kid to change. Yes, you want them to change. That's a, that's an okay reason. But if that's going to give you the goodies, yeah. you're going to find you're going to, it's not going to last very long. Yeah. I even tell potential adoptive parents, look, if there's any ounce of you in this, don't do it. If you just mm. even say, well, we just have a lot of love to give. What are you going to do when that kid looks at you? And I've had this happen with my own kids. When that kid looks at you and just starts cussing you out and says, I hate you. Mm -hmm. I mean, where's that warm, fuzzy feeling, right? In one of my classes, uh, Foundation Youth Ministry, I show that movie Instant Family. You ever seen it? <laughs> I've heard of it. I have not it's seen it. Great yeah. movie. It's got some language and stuff. But man, talk about a theology of adoption and what those parents go through to mm -hmm. love those kids and prove that they love them. 
man. And they struggle. They struggle, man. Watch that movie and you'll, you'll read the script adoption scriptures all differently when it comes to the heart of God yeah. for us. He called us to be faithful, not, not successful. Right. How many people in the Bible weren't successful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The movies, right. We watch, I don't know how that one ends, but like, uh, there's one called the silver lining playbook and I can't even remember, but like, it's about a girl who has bipolar. Right. And then at the end, it's like this happy ending. I'm like, I know what bipolar is. A lot of times there's no happy ending. Like oh, it is a lifetime yeah. struggle. And so I think, you know, we sit up in front of youth group and we tell stories like, I didn't know Jesus. Now I know Jesus. And so like my right. trajectory of my life has changed and not to rain on those parades, but like a lot of life doesn't work out that way. And mental health especially doesn't always work out that way. And so I don't know what soapbox I'm on here, but basically just saying like, we, we can't just lay into this narrative that we do a, and then God owes us, you know, right. B, C, D like we do a, cause we're called to it and God will use that. But that, that's not why we do it, which I think is a weird, like, I just remember wanting to save the world when I was 20, yeah. you know, like yeah. sure, looking at these kids and being like, I have so much love to give. I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. And then nope, that didn't last very long, you know? Yeah, they push your buttons, man, and and uh, this is why you have to love kids where they're at. I, I always told my volunteer leaders, Jesus uh, Jesus called us to be fishers of men, not clean the fish. I can't change myself. How am I going to change somebody else right now? The Holy yeah, Spirit yeah, can yeah, change yeah. me. It's going to take the Holy Spirit and somebody else to change them, not you. But you're just faithfulness, your consistency, your stability, you're loving them no matter what. You know, I hate to say this, even if it costs you your life to some degree, I don't mean be unhealthy codependent, but you're not in it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in it for what God's called you to do. Well, I didn't know what this conversation was going to be, but I just think there's probably people out there who just need to be encouraged and know like, hey, sure. look, just keep in it. You know, like yeah. here is something that I think this generation needs. They need mentoring. They need more than one adult caring yes. for them and helping them see what Jesus is like and helping live that out. And I don't know if they need the programming that we've always provided them. Not this programming is bad, but you know, hey, let's let's move towards this thing, but also know that it's not a magic pill either. And like our society and our kids are hurting, like half of kids are saying they're hopeless. You know, I mean, it's yeah. insane, the mental health and challenges and anxiety and struggle that our teens are facing now. Who's going to show up, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's it. It's easy to want to quit. I, I mean, it's hard to stick in there, but that's what God empowers us to do is to stick in there and Maybe instead of quitting, I, I, here's my encouragement. I know there have been times where I felt like quitting. Uh, I've probably been just as burned in church as everybody else. But what I really need, what I discover is my call has never changed. How I express that call has changed. And sometimes I just need a break in between. Mm. I, sometimes I just need to step away and take a break for my own mental health because it is exhausting. But mm -hmm. but then I get miserable for not doing what God's called me to do, right? And I <laughs> get back in the fight. But so I used to teach martial arts. You know what? You got to sit down and you got to rest between rounds. If, if you don't, you're going to get worn out. Yeah, yeah. So your own mental health is important, right? How you as a youth pastor model that. And this is why you need more people, not just working with young people. You need you need people on your side. They're going to say, hey, when's the last time you took a break? You know, I, so I do coaching too. And I there's this real achieving youth pastor. She's wonderful. But we had to set the discipline in her life just to say, no, you're going to take your Sabbath. Hmm. fortunately her pastor was support supportive and she's doing much better now. Yeah. And so I think it's looking for our kids, but also like, who are we mentoring to? Right. I think like that, like you mentored this youth pastor. And so, um, yeah, I just think this has been a really 
great conversation and and just a reality of where we're at with youth ministry and and teens. It's challenging, but we need people to keep in it and keep stepping up. Any final words that you'd have for folks who might be listening? Well, thanks for what you do, first and foremost, because I sat in on your seminar and your seminar is very helpful. Uh, I think we need to learn more about trauma and how it's impacting our kids. We need to exegete our culture, just like you talked about, not necessarily to become like the culture, but know how to speak into the culture. I'll throw your book uh, name. It's not available yet, so I can't link it. You want to throw your email in the notes? So people sure, can we can shoot you an email. Yeah, 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 and then you can go from there. Introduce your book one more time. It's called Voices, Helping Our Children and Youth Listen to Wise Counsel. Uh, and again, it's put out by Randall House Publishing. Um, I'll actually, uh, I don't know if you heard of D6 Family. I speak there at their conference, D6 Family, uh, I think it's .com. But yeah, anything I could do to help. And if there are folks that need to hear from you and your wisdom, I'm going to push them your way too. Yeah, yeah. At Treehouse, we partner with folks to help address mental health. You know, you have your ministry, you're doing your mentoring, but how do you kind of get some training around mental health? And we focus on offering some kind of regular support group for teens so that they have kind of a safe place to do that. So yeah, that's really what, what we focus on. Yeah, I love it. Thank you for for coming here today and uh, speaking some truth and encouragement. Yeah, check out his book. Thank you for for joining us today. As always, I'm going to end with one of our truths at Treehouse, that you are lovable, capable, and worthwhile. Thanks, everybody. Bye.